You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's up, everybody? It's the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast coming at you Wednesday night, as we usually do. I'm Anthony Cazenza, joined by my guy, John Sheeran. John, uh, hey, I can finally say it was not me that was late this evening. It was you, my friend. <laughs> How's it going? I'm, I'm doing pretty well, man, until you just put, put me on blast. There, I, but... I did put you on blast. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I deserve it. I deserve it, you know. Um <laughs> What was cool though, like man, because I'm always late and you never actually blast me about it, so I I, I should apologize. It's whatever, uh, I, I, I felt like I, I felt like I've earned enough, like um, <laughs> perfect, like I have perfect attendance, so I've earned like a, <laughs> like a tardiness a little bit. But I was gonna, well, I mean, while you insult me, I was gonna compliment you on like the new intro. I feel like every oh. time you add something to the intro, it's like, oh, this show like keeps growing. Like you have the Anthony Munoz interview there, you have like the Joe Burrow media availability and just like damn this show's kind of popping lately it's awesome yeah we had a good we had a good little run um with the with the super bowl and whatnot had the interview with with chad at the interview in person with anthony munoz we had icky woods on the show right after the the Bengals beat the raiders and caught up with ken anderson charles alexander a lot of cool people uh tim mcgee remember we, we caught up with him yeah. again that was fun uh so yeah a lot of a lot of a lot of good times and I just kind of thought, hey, you know, some of those we got to compile some of the more recent memories. We've had some other great guests, obviously, current and past Bengals, beat writers and whatnot. And yeah, just kind of throwing a new intro on there for those who like the video side of the podcast. Speaking of that, if you are new here and you have not done so yet and you like the YouTube channel, go ahead and subscribe down on the bottom on John's side there underneath the Cincy Jungle SB Nation logo. You can click the OBI logo to subscribe. Hit the bell to be notified when we go live, when new content is available. If you can't join us live or you prefer the audio side of things, you can always get this show after the live stream that we do, whether it's this show, whether it's the listener questions live, whether it's happening headlines, anything like that. You can get those on your favorite audio streamer, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, all of the major ones. We are there. Subscribe there as well. Leave us a, re- a review if you could, too. That helps us in a number of different ways, and we always appreciate feedback one way or the other. And we appreciate all the support that you showed us over the years and recent weeks and months through the Super Bowl run. Everything, John and I definitely appreciate that. John, there's uh, since the happening headline show that uh, we did on Monday, there's been some new developments with the Bengals in terms of some interest and leaks of some players that they have been linked to. There's been a mock draft from one of, if not the most prominent draft Nick out there, 
with the Cincinnati Bengals with some very interesting results there. So let's let's kind of catch some of the folks up if we can on some of the recent visits and whatnot interest noted by the Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, I guess we could start here with uh, the Bengals hold a private workout for Wake Forest cornerback Jasir Taylor. So they are seemingly showing a lot of interest and defensive backs rightfully so they're looking for additional help there cornerbacks of all kinds you have just here taylor you have some other guys that we're going to talk about but for taylor i think he was someone who wasn't invited to the combine he played at the shrine bowl and i think it was named like a practice player of the week there after playing i think five years at wake forest he was a super senior he was consistently productive he got the shrine game shrine bowl invite practiced and played really well down there but didn't I guess do enough to earn a combine invite, but he showed out his pro day. I think he ran like a four, four, six, forty, and like a really good three cone. But this is what the top thirty visits are. It's not always going to be like we talked last week. It's not always going to be those guys who are projected to be picked early in the draft. It could be guys who are priority free agents. I think that's more or less what Taylor is because rarely do you see non combine invites get drafted. So this is just a chance to meet Taylor because they didn't meet him at the combine. Get to know him, maybe see him work out, maybe test his medical or whatnot. And when the draft is over and they could still be looking at cornerbacks, you got a guy like Taylor who's athletic and productive and, you know, they already have a meeting with him now. So there's that connection there in case they want to reach back out after the draft. A guy who you can see here from the tweet from Aaron Wilson, NFL reporter, he 185 career tackles, six interceptions with Wake Forest. They've already had some, Pretty good luck with one Wake Forest defensive back yeah. in their in their <laughs> backfield there. So they're they're doing their due diligence. He is 23 years old. Did not play uh, in 2020 to the, because of the pandemic. And you see here last year two interceptions of those six that he had. Um, you know y- you kind of noted all this: 30 passes defended, six interceptions, all of that. Um, and he was Player of the Week there. So. Uh, did run a four four six, jump thirty seven inches, one hundred and twenty five on the vertical. Um, so or, um, on the broad, excuse me, thirty seven inches on the vertical. So yeah, uh, uh, there's some things there that are really kind of intriguing the Bengals. Not only the performance in the the, the the Shrine Bowl practices, but you know some of the workout numbers and whatnot. And this is just one of those things, like you mentioned, that the Bengals are kind of doing some due diligence on some of these guys that are lesser known and maybe kind of seeing how they can round out some things either on day three, maybe day two with some of these guys, but also UDFA classes and kind of making some, some priority lists there. I would think. Yeah. I liked, I, I don't always love the anonymous scouts on Twitter. Um, like the, the retired scouts, the ex scouts or ex personnel who are just anonymous on Twitter. And like, they make it known that, Oh yeah, I used to work in the NFL front office, but I like what one of them said, um a couple days ago about top 30 visits where he was talking about yeah I, I think at this point fans realize that it's more or less like teams are just dotting their eyes and crossing their t's on their draft boards and the top 30 visits are just a way to make sure that like a, a way to finalize the board by just getting any information that you don't have about some of these players and i think with taylor just because of, of the position that he plays they want to finalize that uh, part of the board because they're obviously going to be interested in cornerbacks. And I think that's like, if you just look at the top 30 lists for every team, like some are different than others in terms of the quality of players. But with Taylor, yeah, again, like a guy who 
had minimal exposure, I think, in the pre-draft process. He had the pro day, but I mean, uh, we, we don't know who was down there to see him. We don't know if any Bengals were present there, but yeah, just a, just a chance to get to know him and and to see if if there's a fit there in case when the draft is over and they still need a cornerback. Yeah. The other, I mean, just in addition to that, we, we noted some of this on the Happening Headline show and talked a little bit yesterday on Listener Questions Live special episode there with a couple of the ladies from the Tigris Talk podcast. They may be streaming live, I believe, also <laughs> right now. I think they do Wednesday nights as well. So uh, if you are over there checking their show out, do so and then come hang out with us on the live show if that's how you uh, how you want to roll. But uh, going with that, though, John, Bengals also held a top 30 visit for uh, University of Cincinnati wide receiver Alec Pierce. And then, of course, as, as you mentioned, they're doing their due diligence on the cornerbacks with Andrew Booth Jr., um, a guy who's kind of got a first roundish grade, the physical active corner out of Clemson, a guy that they are also visiting with going forward here. So they are doing a lot of due diligence at that position. How about my boy Pierce, man? Like, yeah. I, I remember it was, it was 2020, I think, when he first started like emerging in UC's offense. I remember distinctly, I think it was like the conference championship game of 2020. And he had this insane catch on the sideline, like a deep ball. It was a contested catch over some poor American conference cornerback. <laughs> and like, this guy's just jumping out of the gym. He's 6'3", 6'4", 210, and he's running like crazy. And I think he always had that athleticism in him, but no one really expected him to really pop off at the combine like he did. But you just look at his profile and there's just, there's not a lot of question marks. There's not a lot of, yeah, but you know, I, I think just because of like the competition level maybe is why he's not viewed as one of the top receiver prospects. And I guess because he didn't eclipse over a thousand yards, even though he was UC's top receiver over the last two years, there's not a lot of red in his ledger, I guess. And I think that's, what's going to make him in all likelihood, a top 75, maybe even a top 60 pick. And for the, from the Bengals perspective, you would think that they would have to make that pick at the end of the second round if they want him. And that might be a little bit too early for a receiver, but we have no idea how the board's going to fall. And if all the other players at the positions of need are there, and if Pierce happens to be there in the second, especially in the third, I think that's really when they would start to get a little itchy on the trigger finger. You know, a guy who has lived in Clifton, Cincinnati for four years plays the type of game of receiver that, emulates that of T Higgins you looking at mm -hmm. more of a long-term plan I don't think it's completely out of the question but yes yeah, second round would be a little bit a little bit of, of a surprise because of the other positions that they need third round I think if he's still there by some chance I think it's in consideration yeah 17 and a half yards uh, per catch averaging there and you know big guy like you mentioned but the big thing was how he ran at the scouting combine 4.41 40 yard dash at uh, 211 pounds so you know i think people didn't think he would run that fast and he did so i think that kind of you know had a lot of people going wait let's go back and look at some things with with yeah. him so so good for him and the Bengals are doing their due diligence there seems like a pretty easy visit to conduct given the geographics of the whole thing but now let's let's go on here this was kind of an interesting one that we put up on cincy jungle one of if not the most prominent draft experts mel kuyper jr of espn brought us a very interesting situation with the Bengals in terms of the first round and what they would do here i will share the screen and i will share the link with folks in the live chat here but they 
kind of had a little bit of a you want you want to walk us through this one john kind of an interesting set of scenarios that played out for them in this mock draft by mel kuyper jr so a lot of Bengals fans are really attached and enamored with tyler linderbaum nowadays especially after mm-hmm. he completely annihilated his pro day and had one of the greatest at testing performances for a center in the history of the last 25 years of uh, positional testing anyways Tyler Linderbaum makes it to the Bengals pick at the 31st pick because that's what he's been doing in every single mock draft. Like he's expected at this point to be available for the Bengals to pick. And I don't know if Mel Kuyper has mocked the Bengals with Tyler Linderbaum before, but he didn't this time. Instead, he had the New York Jets trading up with the Bengals. The Jets have the 35th pick, the third or fourth pick in the second round. They have them moving up with the Bengals and the Bengals getting one of their fourth round picks in return and the Bengals move back to the 35th pick. The Jets take Linderbaum as their long-term center. I don't know who's who's playing center for them for now, but I think Linderbaum's probably a little bit better. The Bengals move back four spots into the second round and take Kair Elam, who is a cornerback out of Florida. He's been, I guess, somewhat linked to the Bengals throughout the process ever since the Bengals got or were slotted with that 31st pick. And I think at this point, he's probably a fringe first-round guy at best. I think a lot of people have him in that early to maybe even lit mid-second-round projection, and maybe that's just a, a product of the prospect that he was because he really, really emerged as like an underclassman at Florida. He was like a five- or four-star recruit, and he didn't have his best year uh, last year in 2021, and I think that kind of killed the overall momentum with him, but he's still one of the five or six consensus best cornerbacks in this class, according to a lot of people, and the cornerback is obviously a position that the Bengals are going to target early. So if the Bengals were to move back and still get one of these guys, in this case, Elam, who's big, physical, and fast, and get an extra pick in return, I think a lot of people would be down for that. The question is, is it worth passing on a guy like Linderbaum? That is the question. And it, it this if this situation is to play out the way that Kuiper has drawn it up, that would tell you a lot about how good the Bengals feel about Ted Karras. Um, I, I mean, it would it would tell you that that's the long term plan. They have no uh, no real plans of him moving back to a guard position, which he has also played in the NFL. Actually, graded slightly better at a, as a guard in the NFL than at center. If if Linderbaum is there, the guy who blew up the testing, the guy who has great tape. The guy who has, yes, some measurable questions in terms of arm length and whatnot, if he is there and the Bengals seemingly would still want, you know, additional options along the offensive line, maybe even an extra body just for this year, whatever the case may be, if he is there and they opt to move back, that that should tell you a lot about what they how they view Ted Karras and their long-term plan, their their immediate plans and their long-term plans and or Maybe they're just not as enamored in uh, with Linderbaum as the rest of us are, right? Um, so it's just an interesting set of scenarios that that Kuiper presents here. And you know the Bengals do like their their corners; they like to pick them early. We talked about that yesterday on Listener Questions Live. So um, yeah, and then here's here's the verbiage here: cornerback is the position Bengals should target if they keep the number 31 pick and they should be thrilled with Elam here. He locked down receivers for the Gators and then ran a 4-3-9-40 at the Combine. He could be a day one starter for Cincinnati. Uh, and then, you know, they they get uh, – he, uh, he's talking about 
how about a third first round selection for the Jets in the in this scenario with a glaring hold center, the top guy still on the board. They deal number 35 and a day three pick. Um, and then you had said, John, that he in the second round, the Bengals then have he has them grabbing UCLA's Greg Dulcich, a guy who is kind of starting to gain a little momentum here in these last final weeks before the NFL draft. I think Dulcich. Dulcich, yeah, you pronounced it correctly. Of course, he's from Los Angeles, of course. Even though, um, <laughs> yeah, so I think Kuiper had um, the Bengals taking Dulcich uh, first or as like the first tight end off the board, and then Trey McBride went right after them to uh, whoever's picking 64. And Dul- Dulcich is considered, I think, amongst the top three tight ends, but I don't know if he's the favorite to go to be, to be the first. We talked about Trey McBride <laughs> two weeks ago on this program as a guy who, you know, could play himself into the early second round consideration, but he's also, I think a popular name amongst mock drafts with, with the Bengals at the end of the second round. So Dulcich is a little bit of a different taste, but I think there's some that would argue, I think Bengals Sands have made the argument that he looks more of the athlete that he tested like on film and in pads compared to a guy like McBride, who I think ran a faster 40 yard dash and he just maybe plays like a more naturally vertical threat at the receiver position. He's a little bit light at like 240 something pounds. But if you're looking for maybe like a long term option, a, a receiving option to just work the seams up the middle, I think Dulcich projects to be the safest player in that role. And he has the production, the athleticism to back it up. So if the Bengals make him the first tight end drafted off the board late in the second round, I don't think it's it would be a huge surprise. I think he was also a guy they um, visited or they, they hosted for a top 30 visit. So they were you know interested in him in, in that degree. Um, but at the same time, that's, you know, pushing defensive tackle. It's pushing safety, you know, down the pecking order, if you will. And maybe they just view Dulcich as a guy that they can't really pass up. Just like it was Elam versus Linderbaum. Like everyone and their mother loves Linderbaum, except for NFL teams. Apparently Tony Pauline said that none of the teams that he's talked to, has Linderbaum with a anything higher than a early second round grade. Mm. And like, that's just like, it's reflected in the mock drafts. Like he's not being picked really high. And everyone is saying that the Bengals need to trade up for this guy. He very well could be available at 31st. In fact, I think it's probably the more likely outcome with this. So we don't know anything until the draft happens. Dulcich could go a lot earlier. Maybe teams like him a lot more. We don't really know. We're just projecting. And then the draft happens. And then we learn a lot about what these teams actually think of these players. But I think, Elam and Dulcich with an extra fourth round pick, they could do far worse in the first two rounds. Broken record PSA time every year, John. What what do people outside of NFL organizations and and outside of scouting departments, what do they say? Oh, there's no way that guy's gonna be there. No way. You say, oh my, there's no way. And every year they're, oh my gosh, that guy's still there. Oh my gosh, the Bengals got a pounce. Oh. You could go year after year. There are players we have talked about that I can, you know, a couple of years ago, the tackle out of Houston, um, that his name escapes me at the moment, but he kept falling. I think he fell. Josh Jones. Thank you, Josh Jones. Um, You know, he fell to the third round of people. But you got to take this guy. You got to take this guy. And everybody thought he was going to be a first round guy, right? We can go all the way back to Andrew Billings and how he was, uh, a, a guy that was mocked to the Bengals at towards the end of the first round that year. And he landed with them in the fourth round. Uh, I mean, it, so th- there are just situations where you think, you know, certain things 
and you don't. I mean, a lot of people are saying, well, McBride, consensus top tight end in this year's class, he's going to go in the first round easily. Well, maybe not, right? I mean, And in this situation, like you said, it, it was Dulcich who was the first tight end off the board in the second round here, right? And Kuiper's mock, yeah. isn't, that, isn't that how it played yeah. out? And then you said McBride was the, the pick right after him. So, and granted, it's not going to definitively play out exactly how Kuiper says here, but I mean, these are also people that are taking, like you said, things that they hear from NFL teams and, and all of that into account when they make these mocks, as do we all when we kind of do our own mock drafts. And that's that's something to, to just kind of note. I hate to sound like a broken, broken record. I say it a couple of times every year, it seems, but everybody is so sure that certain players will not be there at certain spots or in certain mock drafts and whatnot. And as as it always plays out, there are a handful, if not more so, players that end up lasting longer than most of us sitting on our couch predict them to last. I think that's what I've enjoyed in recent years about draft coverage because it's more of an increased awareness that, hey, maybe we don't know everything and anything at all about what is going to happen, how these players are going to pan out. I would like to share some nuggets about Josh Jones in his first full year as a starter for the Arizona Cardinals. He was penalized 12 times and finished with a PFF grade of 48.3. How's that for a bona fide first round pick? Yikes. Yikes. I remember hearing after that that he he had some struggles uh, after that after that rookie year. I definitely remember that. So and there was what what was the concern there? I can't remember. Was it just uh, was there an injury? Know, man. There, there, were, there were some or maybe just teams weren't as enamored with him as, as all of us were. I don't know. I remember like from the Bengals, I think people had asked like Lapham and he was concerned about his arm length. I don't think his arm length is what's giving him trouble in the NFL. I think it might be something worse. Right, right. Just maybe a talent issue. But uh, regardless, Bengals nailed that draft class anyway. Uh, that was the Burrow, Higgins, Logan Wilson, Akeem Davis, Gaither draft. So uh, they, they did very well in that draft without Josh Jones. Uh, and they it did take him a couple of years now since that draft to remedy the offensive line in a big, big way, but they have seemingly done so. And as this mock shows here, I don't know, uh, I don't know if the Bengals would go with a potential offensive lineman, even if one of the top ones lands in their lap at number 31. We will see. But an interesting set of circumstances that Mel Kuyper Jr. gives the Bengals and a move back. Would not surprise, I think, at least some of us if the Bengals ended up moving back from that pick, depending on how the board falls. I don't. I think they're going to let the draft come to them quite a bit this year, especially in that first round. Uh, I don't. I don't know that they're going to be hyper aggressive in a lot of different ways. We'll see what happens, though. But uh, the interesting mock draft from uh, Kuiper there, and of course you have the. Uh, the other information that we shared with you that the Bengals are going uh, to be visiting with or working out the Wake Forest defensive back there. So go check out those articles. We've pinned those in the live chats uh, on cincyjungle.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. We have a prospect profile. John's taking the reins on this one. And yes, we are sticking with the cornerback theme here. And John is going to the Pac-12. It is not me doing the Pac-12 work here. It is John. So... Mr. John, who are we going to be previewing this week here for Bengals prospect profile? Not just a Pac-12 guy, someone who grew up in in the Pacific on the Pacific Coast and chose a another Pac-12 school over USC. So don't hold him against him, uh, Anthony. I won't. I won't. But we're, we're going to talk about Kyler Gordon, who is one of the more fascinating prospects in my mind because of just his journey um as a part of the Washington Huskies football team just his overall experience and what he comes into the NFL with attached to him because this guy was a four-star recruit coming out of high school I think he had a lot of expectations attached to him and in 2019 he was coming off of his redshirt year and I, I don't I, I don't remember who the other starting cornerback was for that team but one of them was Trent McDuffie who was projected to be like a top 16 pick and there was a competition in 2019 between Gordon and McDuffie to be like that other starting cornerback. And McDuffie won out. So Gordon only started four games that year for Washington. And after two years there, like he was, he barely played. Like he was a role player or whatnot, but he barely did anything. And then 2020 comes around. It's COVID. The Pac 12 only plays like a handful of games. He only plays four games. So he's like 21 years old. He started five games after being a four star recruit at this great program. And this, he's got like nothing really to show for it. So t- 2021 comes around and he's finally a full-time starter opposite of McDuffie. He plays outside. He plays the slot. I think he finished both, yeah. the, the, the 2021 season in the slot. But that versatility, I think, is something that makes sense for the type of athlete that he is. And in this first full year starting, I think he like he led the team in past defenses and, and interceptions over a guy like, like Trent McDuffie. And McDuffie, I think he's a more consistent player. There's just more stability attached to his game, even though he doesn't have the physical traits as Kyler Gordon. But those physical traits that Gordon possesses, I think, makes him an intriguing option potentially at the end of the first round because at about six foot tall, 194 pounds, the 4'5", 240 is not phenomenal, but you're talking about explosion. You're talking about balance and flexibility. The guy almost jumped 40 inches on the vertical, almost jumped 11 feet on the broad the agility and the flexibility is insane. Three nine six short shuttle, six mm-hmm. six seven three cone. Like that's, I mean, 
regardless of his size, like it, it's phenomenal. And, and honestly, I'm looking at his size and I'm looking at those numbers and the fact that he can play inside and out. Leon Hall is like the first guy that I thought of. Uh, and I think like comparisons, if you only follow like one team, like I feel like comparisons to former Bengals really helped out the most. And Leon Hall, I think, was a better overall athlete because Leon Hall had like four three nine speed coming out of Michigan, and he was a little bit longer too. He had like thirty three inch arms. So Gordon is not the complete and total athlete that Hall is, but I think for a guy who his like biggest strength is breaking on the ball and like playing in front of him and, and just having this explosion come out either in run defense or just making plays on some of those short routes and just getting his hands on the ball, like he's he may not be the shutdown corner that thrives with his back turned against him but i look at the athletic tools i look at just the way that he ascended i think is very important when you're talking about just his overall trajectory because just like last year he was the 14th ranked cornerback in pff's database like an 87.2 grade after being like 76.8 last year so the trajectory is going up which i think is important especially with the Bengals, and we will get to that in a little bit but just a freak athlete who I think is only getting better. The fact that he didn't play that much in college, I think hurts him from being a first round lock. And I think all of those, everything in that combined, it makes for an interesting projection. Like I have no idea where he's going to go. I think some people rank him as this this mid to late second round player, but the athleticism and the tools and some of the production, it, it screams a guy that you would take a chance on if you're there at the end of the first round and the other top cornerbacks are gone. And even compared to a guy like Booth and Elam, who may not be as, as explosive of athletes, they, they may have some physical advantages on him. But I think in terms of just the athleticism and just the versatility, of what you can do with him in your secondary, I, I think he might be even more intriguing than some of those other guys in Booth and Elam. So he's really interesting to me. I have no idea where he's going to go, but I, I don't think it would be too shocking if he's in the conversation at 31. That's a, a very good point. And a guy that could go in the 20s, could go in the 30s, could go, you know, in the middle of round two. I, I I don't see him lasting through much, much more than round middle of round two. I think teams would be too intrigued with the athleticism, the, the, the value of the position and a lot of different things I'm sharing. I, we shared some stats and just a, a little bit of profile stuff on him. Here is the RAS score, courtesy of Kent Lee Platt, math bomb there. We love this this guy this time of year. Nine point, uh, you, you see the 9.68 score that he has here. You see the good composite size grade. Um, you see the elite composite explosion grade there. Uh, and then you see the composite agility grade, all speaking to what John just, just told you about with the athleticism, the athletic profile of this player elite there, and then a good composite speed grade in terms of the relative athletic score, courtesy of Math Bomb, Kentley Platt uh, there. So... I, I, there are a lot of things that teams are going to like about him. The fact that he played inside and outside, that's a thing that teams will like a lot about him. His size, they will like that about him. The athleticism, they will like that about him. That goes back to a little bit of a roll of the dice, though, because does the, does the versatility of playing inside or outside, does that mean he isn't truly a suitable boundary corner in the NFL uh, full-time? And does that hurt his stock? Um, you know, you could look at other other facets where he has two interceptions to his name. And I know interceptions are not the end all be all of statistics for cornerbacks, but that is something to look at. Two interceptions over the course of a, a handful of years. He's a redshirt junior 
and those two came this last season. Did have seven passes defended this last season, so you like that. Like you mentioned, there is a lot here. And then, of course, John, you have to look at the pedigree that Washington puts out with quality corners. You look at the Trufant brothers. You look at Marcus Peters. You can go all the way back. You want to know who I, I think I, I did a little research here. Ray Horton, the old Bengals defensive back who played uh, played corner safety in the NFL and coached with the Bengals, was on their Super Bowl team, all that kind of stuff. He was a Husky. So, you know, these are these are guys that uh, you can you can look at and say, well, there's a lot of different. Uh, you know, they have the pet pedigree there of a lot of different good players in the NFL. So that also intrigues a lot of teams here. So, I mean, there's a lot to like with this player. It's just, I, I feel like there's stuff, like you said, there's, there, there are elements that are more intriguing perhaps than a, a booth or an Elam in terms of the athleticism profile, but there are other risks when you're talking about Elam running a four, three, nine Gordon running a four, five, two, that's, that is a, a decent difference there. Um, so, I mean, it, it, there's some risks associated here, but uh, there are a lot of things to like with this player too. Yeah, I think the speed is only concerning right now because one of his weaknesses is that he's just prone to some like double moves and fakes and whatnot, and that's not obviously great. You don't want that in a first-round cornerback, and when you kind of get beat on some of those, if you don't have that long speed to recover, you end up just getting burned. Like with William Jackson, I think he ran like a sub 4-4-40, and he was even when he was really good with the Bengals, he was also kind of prone to biting on those double moves, but he had the recovery speed to make it up, to make up for it on those vertical routes where he was beat initially, but then he had the closing speed to, to you know, el eliminate the separation at the end. And maybe Gordon doesn't necessarily have that, which is maybe why some teams may project him to be uh, inside only like a slot only. But I think the fact that he moved around so much, it also kind of hindered his development too. If they stuck him on the boundary, like full time, like, with sauce Gardner, he was consistently like he'd had the same role for three years in UC's defense. It fit him to a T and that allowed his development to just skyrocket as a freshman and sophomore. And then now he's a top five, top 10 pick with Gordon. It was just a lot more back and forth and there was no real stability. And again, not a lot of true playing time. So with the Bengals, I look at him as like, if they have their top prospects off the board, if the worst, case scenario happens where there is no T Higgins available there at the 31st pick. They don't have a guy who they have this really high grade on like a mid first round grade on and all those guys are gone and Gordon is there and he has these traits and you buy into the idea that he's ascending right now. He's far from like the a finished product of who he is, right. even though he's not exactly on the young side. I think he's going to be 23 this year. He's not exactly a young player because he's been in college for so long. But if you feel like 2021 was the beginning of who Gordon is going to be. I think you buy into that potential and it makes up for the lack of consistency because if Gordon is, is the pick, I don't think that you can um, write him in as the starter cornerback. I think Eli Apple is still probably the favorite to win out that job, but that might not be the worst scenario for them if they re-signed him and they paid him enough to be confident in him starting for one more year with Gordon. I think it's just a matter of getting him reps here and there and then fully buying into him being that starter for 2023 and moving on because we see this a lot in the free agency, man. They like to buy low on some of these guys and they like to develop them and they like to buy into the idea that they're only improving from here on out. And I think with Gordon, you can make that similar case. It's yeah. I mean, it's, it's really just kind of betting on some of the elements of the athleticism and the versatility. And you hope that, like I said earlier, that the versatility is actually not a negative and that, you know, 
he's he's not capable on the boundary at the NFL level. Um, but you know, it also it also shows that he can also line up with you know players of different profiles on the opposite opposite team where you know if he's working in the slot if he's working outside those are things that are gonna you know play in his favor a little bit in some teams eyes too so I like the player I like the idea and this is this is what's good about I mean I I think a lot of people right now would say you know the Bengals really need that starting boundary corner right now that can take over for Eli Apple and I, I understand the reasoning there but this is kind of this type of pick on this player is what a team in the Bengals position would do, depending on how the how the board would fall. This is when you're a good team, you're coming off of a Super Bowl appearance, you you've done a lot of different things in free agency. There might be some risk associated here, but there's a lot of upside associated with this player here. And this at the back end of the first round, maybe if he lasts into the second round, I, I you know I would be pretty surprised by that. But I'm going to take my own PSA advice that I <laughs> <laughs> that I said a couple minutes ago. You know, so, but this is, this would be the type of pick that a team in the Bengals position where it would make a lot of sense for them, where you can say that you can develop this guy. There's a, there's a lot to like here. There's some risk, but you know, we like what's, what's on paper here in terms of athleticism, versatility, whatnot. Yeah. And you definitely want to bet on those guys with that athleticism baked in. Like those guys aren't getting quicker and and any faster, especially for the guys who are now 22, 23. And that's a lesson that I learned with T Higgins because he tested at 20 years old. He didn't test really, really well, but I mean, some guys are still maturing and growing. Also, I just want to cite my source. Like I kind of took that sauce Gordon uh, nugget from Mike Renner of PFF. I just want to make sure I wasn't plagiarizing there, but that he was the guy who originally said that. So love you, Mike. (laughs) uh i mean where are you seeing him potentially go i mean i I, are you seeing him are you seeing a team potentially being enamored enough to take him in the late teens do you see him lasting beyond the mid-second round i mean that seems to me where this he's got a really wide scope of where he could potentially go at least as we sit here right now a couple weeks before the draft he's not he's not a blazer with the the 40 time, but he's also not slow by any means. There's a lot of athleticism there as the RAS score denotes. Um, the PFF pa- uh, pass defense score last year was pretty high. I think it was 89.6. So, I mean, there's cap- there, you know, it shows some capability there. I mean, I don't know what, what is, what's your gut telling you in terms of where this player may go? Man, like it, it seems that someone that athletic can't escape the first two rounds. But that's exactly what Joseph Asai did last year, which is why the Bengals probably pounced in that scenario. He could go at the very end of the first round. He could go all the way to the third round. Like, honestly, it feels like everyone is all across the board with this guy. So in all likelihood, I think he's going to he's going to land like early, mid second round uh, range. And if the Bengals do trade back in that range, like that's probably the ideal spot to take him. You know, you wouldn't get that fifth year option, but you probably get better value for him because again, he's not a finished product. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm doing kind of trying to do some homework here in terms of, and granted I wouldn't say exactly who he was necessarily matched up against here, but unfortunately I'm looking at Drake London, the Mm. USC wide receiver, one of the best in this year's class to see how he had matched up and how he performed against Washington. Unfortunately, it's looking between his injury last year, COVID shortened 2020 and 
him, you know, not playing uh, every game in 2019. I don't, I don't think there's, there's much there in terms of potential stats from London. I'll, I'll, I'll do a little more homework on that, but it doesn't look like Drake London, again, one of the top wide receivers from USC in this year's class. Uh, not much data there in terms of how he performed against Washington, unfortunately, in the, in these corners. So uh, again, Kyler Gordon, a guy along with Trent McDuffie, two exciting corners in this year's class out of the University of Washington and a lot of upside there, a lot of versatility there, a lot of athleticism there, but um, an element of risk in some ways as well. That's usually how it goes for some of those picks at the end of the first round. It's not, again, it's not always going to be T Higgins, but I think you made a good point. Like they're going to desperately hope it is. And I think they're going to stay put and see how the board falls to them. And I don't think, again, Gordon is one of the guys that they're really hoping falls there. That just might be someone that they kind of more or less settle on, but that's, that might not be like giving Gordon enough credit because he's got a lot of positives attached to his resume as well. Well, you have some additional data as we move off of the player profile of Kyler Gordon and good, a great job on that, John. I, I, you know, you. I, I love, I love me the pack 12 guys. So I like that one. When you presented that one, I was like, Ooh, I like that. Just, you only get just, one, not, not doing any more. <laughs> uh, both position wise and, and the player himself, uh, really, really intriguing there as it goes with the Cincinnati Bengals. So we'll have to keep an eye on him, but you have some PFF data that you have compiled in terms of player profiles and whatnot with the Cincinnati Bengals, who they prefer. And I think kind of, output of recent players if i'm not mistaken yeah more or less and i'll i'll share the screen here in a minute but a little backstory here i wanted to poll Bengals fans about who they think the the 10 best Bengals draft picks have been since 2016 and that year cutoff is important then i'll get to in a minute and long story short i didn't know survey monkey uh costed 50 bucks to see more than 10 responses didn't want to do that. So unfortunately, I only have data for like 10 responses and I just kind of extrapolated <laughs> it. But I think that the responses are a fair representation of who the 10 best draft picks have been over the last six years. And I ended up going with 12 just because a handful of them like tied for 10th. So the 10 in order of where they were picked overall goes as follows. Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, Jonah Williams, William Jackson III, T. Higgins, Joe Mixon, Jesse Bates, Tyler Boyd, Logan Wilson, Sam Hubbard, Carl Lawson, and Evan McPherson. I think we can all agree that those are the 10, 12 best picks since 2016. And I chose 2016 because PFF has only been grading college players since 2014. So this gives us at least two years for every one of these guys of, of tangible grading, like actual seasons that they've started and PFF has graded their performance. And I wanted to see out of these 12 successful draft picks from the Bengals, how they performed in college from a PFF lens. And we're, we're going to show on the screen here just how well these guys have actually performed. And I remember seeing some data about some of these guys and what they did at PFF. But I think this is pretty damn eye-opening in terms of just a consistent trend. So just at the top, everyone knew how phenomenal Joe Burrow was at LSU. His 2019 season had a 94-9 
offensive grade. And these grades that you see are either offense, defense, like general. And for McPherson, you know, I just did field goal grades because I didn't want to do just special teams. But you have three tiers or uh, pillars of PFF numbers. The one, you have their highest PFF grade that they ever did, that they ever got. One is the final PFF grade, their last PFF grade. So their grade on the year that they declared for the draft. So for Burrow, his peak and his last PFF grade were both 2019, his last year in college. And then just their average PFF grade is the third number here based off of how many years of grading they had as either starters or significant contributors. So for Burrow, 94.9 was his best PFF grade. That was 2019. His average was 87.7 because his first year he had like an 80. Jamar Chase, his peak and final were 91.1. His average was 80 because as a, as a true freshman, he had like a 70. Jonah Williams, 89.2 was his final and best PFF grade, and he averaged an 80. He was pretty consistent throughout his three years at Alabama. William Jackson III, 90.3 was his 2015 grade. That was his last year as well. His average was 83, 84.3. T. Higgins, he had two years at Clemson. One of them was like 89, and one of them was 90. His peak was 90.5, and his average was 89. Joe Mixon's best year was his final year at 86.3, and his average was 83.9. Finally, we get to Jesse Bates, who had his best year not in his last year at Wake Forest, but his best year was just only 77.4, and his average was 75.7, and his last PFF grade was 74. Tyler Boyd, though, we go back to this trend. 90.3 was his highest PFF grade. His last PFF grade was 89.9, so... In two years, he basically had a 90 uh, PFF grade. Logan Wilson had four years at Wyoming. His first year was only like a 54, but the three years that followed were in the low 80s. And then he had a 90.6 in his last year, which was his best year. So his average was like Mm 77.9. Sam Hubbard, his peak PFF grade was 80.7. His final year at Ohio State had like a 78.5. So his average was about 80. Carl Lawson's best year at Auburn was an 86.4. His pass rushing grade was like 91. That was mm-hmm. his last year. His average was 78.6. And good old Shooter had a best PFF grade of 83.3 and an average of 82. When it comes to successful Bengals draft picks in the last six years, I think we have to start valuing PFF grades. I think Bengals fans in general are more open to exploring the validity of PFF and their grading system because of how favorable they tend to grade Bengals players. But I think there's a lot of value with them from on the pro level. And I think we have to start looking at some of these at the college level too. And it's not like the Bengals are only going after high PFF grades in, in their draft picks, but these are like a lot of their first and second round picks. And they correlate to guys who are really good <laughs> from a PFF lens in college. I, I, this doesn't look like a coincidence to me. I think if we want to identify the, the best players for the Bengals to target in the draft, I think we really have to start looking at PFF. Well, this is really excellent work and excellent research on your part here. Here's, I mean, the thing that immediately strikes me here, when you look at five of the 12 names on this list, William Jackson, Joe Mixon, Jesse Bates, Sam Hubbard, Carl Lawson, well, I guess Tyler Boyd too. So that's, let's see here. One, two, three, four, five, six, excuse me. So half of the list, those are Marvin Lewis picks. Uh, And if you remember, 
Marvin Lewis, I believe, coined PFF as that, quote, dumbass website. Didn't he call it that at some point to media members and people when people asked him about PFF scores, metrics and whatnot? So I guess I, I think I think back to that and I go, you know, was he just, I don't know, being funny or did he did he not? I, I don't I don't know how he really felt about this playing into everything with with the Bengals, their drafting philosophy and whatnot. Now PFF has really taken off in the past couple of years, obviously, and for good reason. But you know, when you look, I I think this regime, the Zach Taylor regime, really relies on this data more heavily than Marvin Lewis's regime did. But nevertheless, half of the players on here are are Marvin Lewis pick. So that, I don't know, that just kind of strikes me as something odd here. Honestly, I think the case is more teams, including the Bengals grade and evaluate players similar to PFF than they realize at the end of the day, the PFF grades are based off of what you do on the field. Mm -hmm. So if the grades are matching the success rate of some of these picks, it's almost like, these guys who are evaluating these these players on NFL teams are using very similar processes to those in the PFF offices. Like there, there's nothing. It's not a hot take that Joe Burrow had a played like a 95 grade. Like just looking at the eye test, it's not a hot take to say that for Jamar Chase who had a 91 or Jonah Williams with an 89. Like th- these grades more or less match how these guys performed on the field, and not everyone of their top PFF graded players and draft picks ended up doing well. Jordan Willis is like the best example of this. He was like a 90 or like an 80 something uh, pass rusher out of Kansas state. He's obviously done nothing in the NFL. It doesn't always work out, but the correlation here in terms of actual success, it kind of means something. And even like Jackson Carmen, I think his best grade was like a around an 80 or, and like he was consistently in the seventies and that sort. So like, it's not always the guys that that work out, and so it it shouldn't be looked at as oh, if you grade well at PFF, you're definitely going to be a great NFL player. But I think we should start looking at PFF grades for college players in terms of like if the Bengals invested in them pretty highly, how did they do from a career standpoint and from like their their best year from a PFF standpoint? That might tell us a little bit about how they're going to do in the NFL. Yeah, you know, and I think in these pro player profiles we've done too. You know, I I don't take PFF as absolute pure scripture. I think it's a very good measuring stick on a lot of different fronts. But that's why we've used these when we did Drake Jackson. We talked about his pass pass rush grade and how that has grown over the last couple of years with him as a young player. We just talked about the pass defense grade with Kyler Gordon on that profile. So, I mean, those are measurables along with all of the combine numbers and whatnot that you got to take into into effect with with potentially picking these players. And again, um, you know, the other thing with it, you know, this is all on field performance, but as we know, I think a number of these players have been team captains on their respective college teams and whatnot. And that coupled with the on field performance is what I think this regime in Zach Taylor is, has specifically looked at. Yes, of course they love the on field stuff, but they also like the fact that a lot of these players on this list 
I mean, I, I can think, uh, even though Boyd was a Marvin Lewis guy, I think he was a team captain, if I remember correctly, back at Pitt for all the things he did there. I think Hubbard was, I, if I remember correctly, I think Hubbard was one of those guys. Yep. And then you, of course, you got Burrow, you got Jonah Williams, and those are things that they value along with the on-field stuff too there. So there's there's a lot of things here that you can connect the dots with why they are Bengals players and why they are their most highest performing players so far as recent draft picks. Yeah, and I think uh, the the two most important things to remember from that is the fact that all of those guys had multiple years of significant playing time in college enough to be like graded as such. And for example, like Kyler Gordon, I only have him for like one year of significant playing time. So that's that's a potential factor with that. But also all of those guys had their best highest graded years except for Jesse Bates and Sam Hubbard. All of them, I think, had their best years be their last years. So they were ascending as they progressed in college, and then they entered the NFL after playing their best football. So I think that also matters when you talk about a guy like Kyrie Elam, who had his worst year in Florida last year because he was penalized so much. But he had like a phenomenal freshman year. It's the same thing with Derek Stingley, who had who just took the college football by storm in 2019. It was like the best freshman yep. player in history. And he hasn't really been the same since. So obviously Stingley's probably not going to be there, but that is something that I would consider like a guy who has been struggling in recent years in college, even though they started off well, I think that's something that the Bengals typically like to avoid. And obviously the, the more that they've avoided it, the better it's worked out for them. Yeah. Uh, I think it was Stingley. I saw something interesting on, I think it was NFL network or ESPN today about, uh, his father, who played in the NFL, if I'm not mistaken, and there was uh, a freak injury there. Yeah. So uh, really, really kind of sad background on that. Just speaking of Derek Stingley, I didn't know that about him, quite honestly. And I saw a little bit about that at the while those were on at the gym earlier today. And I was like, well, wow, I didn't. Sad to say, I didn't really, uh, you know, I hadn't brushed up on that side of things for him. So um, sad deal there. But at, at any rate, that is excellent research there, John. And I think it is telling and it is that's that's why I think I didn't know you were going to present that, but that is why we have been presenting at least portions of PFF da data when we present these player profiles to at least say, hey, you know, if this is a, a an edge rusher, here's their pass rushing grades this year and maybe the prior years. Here's their pass defense grade as a cornerback, and you know, it's part of it's a big part of the puzzle as to potential success of these of these players and teams are monitoring that and I think the Bengals are now kind of on the front end as you can tell of of monitoring scores and and really valuing that to make sure that their top players have these top scores one more thing because I know people are going to be curious Tyler Linderbaum would have the highest peak PFF grade out of all those players with a 95.4 that he just had in 2021 and his scores have been going from 81.7 as a freshman to a 91.5 last year or two years ago to a 95.4 last year. So if you want to yeah. talk about checking the boxes that the Bengals may be interested in, I think he, I think he checked those. Good. Yeah, that's that's outstanding scores there. And um, wow. Is that that's the overall I, I take yeah. it right? Not yeah. not pass block run block. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's something definitely to, to, to watch out for if they are obviously valuing these and taking these players. You know, Linderbaum would be, as you mentioned, the highest. That would be even higher than Joe Burrow on that, uh, on that peak score there. So very, very interesting. We're going to start closing up some things. And before we get to our mic drop, as we usually do, 
I am going to give us a little bit of a remember when. I hope some of you have been enjoying these kind of, I guess, Bengals history lessons, if you want to coin them as such. But we kind of take a stroll down memory lane. Unfortunately, some of these strolls are not always bringing up the happiest of Bengals memories. We've talked about Warren Sapp almost becoming a Bengal. We talked about Marshall Falk almost becoming a Bengal. I want to, again, rewind back to the 2004 offseason, John, and that's going a little bit in the way back machine. But it was an exciting time for the Bengals because they had just came off of Marvin Lewis's first year where they almost made it to the playoffs. They had lost, they lost to the Browns in that final week. It was kind of a win-and-you're-in thing, an exciting season where Chad Johnson broke out as a star receiver. Rudy Johnson was just starting his ascension as one of the top backs in the NFL, and you had, you know, the, the first year coming up with Carson Palmer, John Kitna had a comeback player of the year campaign. So there was just a lot of excitement going into 2004, but there was also a lot of transition. And I, I want to tell you the Bengals started moving and shaking and doing a lot of different things to set up their draft class. Now, a lot of these remember wins we're doing is kind of draft centric given the time of year that we are right now. So I'm going to focus on that a little bit. You got to stay with me on this because there's a lot of moving parts here. Before the draft, the Bengals made a trade, and that trade was one of their most iconic players and probably one that will be entering, I would assume, their ring of honor in sometime soon, and that would be Corey Dillon getting traded. This is an old article from ESPN.com. The Bengals traded Corey Dillon to the New England Patriots and to get, to get a second-round pick here, and you can see the quote here. I quote, I think everyone pretty much broke even, Dylan said. We're talking about the New England Patriots. They're the defending Super Bowl champs. They got exactly what they wanted. I guess Cincinnati got exactly what they wanted. Corey Dillon got exactly what he wanted. I'm happy. It's a good deal all around, I think. Now, if you remember, Dylan played seven years with the Bengals to that point. Was very productive. But that year under Marvin Lewis, he wasn't the guy. He, he started to be that guy. Then he got hurt. And all of a sudden, Rudy Johnson broke out. And Dylan kind of was a little bit. I think it was a groin injury or something like that. So he was kind of an afterthought at this point. And so between that, the Bengals losing yet again, not making the postseason, there was kind of an infamous thing where Dylan, I think, chucked his shoulder pads into the stands or something like that at the end of the season when the Bengals lost and said, I'm basically done. Um, And so Lewis at that point kind of setting the tone as he did many times, especially early in his Bengals tenure, said, we're going to be trading this player. Uh, the, the further quote of Corey Dillon, I set a couple of records in Cincinnati, so I'm always going to have love for Cincinnati and that fan base, but today is a new day. I'm just going to finish what I started in Cincinnati in New England. It's the first time I've been this excited about a season since I've been in college. A little bit of a backhanded statement there. Uh, and then Marvin Lewis said, Corey has been a very productive back for the Bengals for a number of years, but you don't get a second round pick without giving something up. And we believe this clearly is the move that is in our team's best interest. So they got the 56th overall pick for Corey Dillon at that point. Okay. That was one of the picks that they had. So Corey Dillon, no longer the Bengals. They are committed to the Rudy Johnson era at that point. I'm going to bring up this. This is an article on Cincy Jungle from our former fearless leader, Josh Kirkendall. This was back shared in 2014. I think this is a 10 year anniversary piece that uh, I guess in some ways talking about some of the Bengals draft trades, chronicling those. And you look back here, here's 20, 2012 and some of the things that the Bengals did. Did they trade up? Did they trade back? Go back to 
2004. Now the Bengals started moving and shaking again with that 56th pick in their pocket from the Corey Dillon trade a little bit before the draft. The Bengals then moved from 17 overall in the first round. They swapped picks with the Broncos number 24 to 24. And then the Bengals also got a fourth round pick number 117 overall in that the Bengals got Delta O'Neill. So they got another second round pick lost Corey Dillon or traded away Corey Dillon, however you want to coin that got Delta O'Neill by swapping their picks in the first round with Denver. Delta O'Neill ended up making a pro bowl with the Bengals kind of a ball hawk type of guy, a gambler, as we know, very athletic guy. Um, but then, then you got all kinds of different moving, you know, moving parts here. As we know, here's how it played out. The Bengals then in that draft move, uh, move back with the Rams to number 26. The Rams got number 24 and they also got a fourth round pick number 123. So the Bengals got another fourth round pick and they're saying, Hey, we're in good shape. The Rams drafted Steven Jackson with their pick that they moved to get. The Bengals drafted Chris Perry. Now, in fairness to Chris Perry, I know he ended up being a bust, but there was, at least in the 05 season, he was a very fun receiving option, a a very good outlet for Carson Palmer that year. But other than that, uh, disappointment there, especially when you saw the career that Steven Jackson had by comparison. So, Here's how that draft ended ended up shaping up for the Bengals here, John. And I don't know uh, what you want to make of this. I'm sorry if I'm being a little long-winded, but there was a lot to digest here and a lot to sift through with this class. And let's take a stroll down memory lane and remember when this is how the Bengals 2004 draft class played out after all of the trades shedding the roster of Corey Dillon, moving around in the first round a couple of times, getting Delta O'Neal. You get Chris Perry, Kwan Ratliff with their 49th pick that they had, Medea Williams, the safety out of Maryland with the pick from Corey Dillon, Caleb Miller, Landon Johnson, Matthias Askew, I believe that was the one they got from the Rams there, Robert Gathers with that other pick from New England, Stacey Andrews, Maurice Mann, Greg Brooks, Casey Bramlett. I, Ratliff stayed with the team for a little bit. So did Medew. And Medew Williams, I think, went on to Washington after that and played okay. Other than that, you got Gethers. You had one franchise tag on Stacey Andrews, and that's about it. So after all of that, that's what the Bengals netted out of that draft. Moving on from Corey Dillon. Getting Delta, I mean, you could say Delta O'Neill, I guess, was part of that draft class, quote unquote, but um, not not the most sound draft class after all of that movement and acquiring Dude, of picks. The NFL twenty years ago is wild to me. Like I was like I barely remember this, but like like just the intricacies of all of that is insane because the Bengals got a second round pick for a thirty year old running back. That would never happen today. Yeah, and he only had one more like good year. Like he had a phenomenal year with the Patriots that year. I don't know if he's the reason why they won the Super Bowl. They still had Tom Brady in that defense, but like the Bengals had Rudy Johnson. He ran for almost fifteen hundred yards in yep. two thousand four, and they got a second round pick who ended up being one of my favorite players of the two thousands in Madi Williams, who ended up being a better secondary player than Kiwan Ratliff. So I mean, mm-hmm. that's another that's another reason why to not overreact to the draft. Just because Ratliff was taken before Williams doesn't mean that he was going to be the better player, but the, the fact that like 
so they traded with the Rams and the Rams took Steven Jackson and then the Bengals either panicked and chose the next running back or they were always going to take Chris Perry because they had Chris Perry as their better running back and they just missed. It just, <laughs> it just smells a lot like taking Billy Price after frantically yep. panicking that Frank Ragnow yep. <laughs> just went yep. off the board, which is why you shouldn't just lock on to a position because you had one guy in mind and you should just pivot when you get the chance but even still they drafted chris perry when they had rudy johnson on the team like it's just a lot of it's a lot of things going back and forth i I guess like even still like you wouldn't see trading back seven spots in the what did the wait hold on refresh my memory did that trade that they got delta and neil did that happen during the draft or before the draft i think it was during yeah i think it was during that would never happen Uh, that would never happen again we don't see that happen like the players getting traded in the middle of the draft like that's insane Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the Bengals did not net a lot of, I mean, Medea Williams was decent. Robert Gathers was a guy who hung right. He was a Marvin Lewis favorite forever and ever and ever. Uh, run stopper extraordinaire, Robert Gathers. He had some dirt on him at this point. Oh, God, Robert Gathers, run stopper extraordinaire. Great guy. (laughs) And uh, had one, like, crazy season with the Bengals in terms of sacks and everything. Uh, But other than that, just was a guy that was kind of a a run stopper guy, but a team captain guy that Marvin just loved. And other than that, Stacy, the Stacy Andrews experiment, Chris Perry, it just, it didn't work out. Uh, Delpho O'Neill gave him a couple of good seasons. Adia Williams, like I said, and, and that was, that was kind of it after all of that. So remember when the Bengals crazy setup and I guess into the craziness into the draft, and all the picks they acquired that really netted very little for them in 2004. That was the remember when a long winded one, but uh, f- hopefully you all found that enjoyable. Wild. You, you want to drop the mic, man? Let's go. What do you got? All right. So I ran a poll question earlier today um, with the news of Phil Castellini kind of alienating the entire Reds fan base. It reminded me of another professional sports team executive at Cincinnati. Uh, saying something a little bit controversial that got the fans in a rye. So I asked Twitter, what was the better quote? Troy Blackburn on signing right tackles. We can't go to Walmart and buy off the shelf or Phil Castellini on his consumer base, the fans. Where else are you going to go? And after five hours and 517 votes, good old Phil Castellini has knocked Troy Blackburn <laughs> off of his pedestal with a 53% vote share. So congratulations Detroit Blackburn, you are now no longer the biggest clown in a front office in Cincinnati. Well, here's the – you saw where we voted. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, look, yeah, I, the, the Walmart one, that was that was about uh, the whole Bobby Hart thing, right? Yeah, yeah, that was the whole Bobby Hart thing, right? Oh, God, yeah. Um, yeah, so that one, that one kind of lives in infamy there. But, yeah, I, the Castellini thing – and I think it was Brandon Seho, a local Cincinnati media member who kind of gave him a little bit of an opportunity to walk that back or explain kind of what the previous question, he kind of doubled down on that thing. Um, and I, I kind of tongue in cheek named the show a little bit of a similar title to the Castellini quote here, but I, um, I, I don't know, man, that when I, when I, it was one of those things where I, I watched that on Twitter and I just kind of was like, Ooh, wow, you're just going after it, kind of doubling down right there. I Physically I, cringed, you know? 
Yeah, yeah, that, I, I, I was not a fan of that, and I don't think a lot of people were at that point. And it's one of those things that how can – you can say some of these things. Winning cures it all, right? And we've the Bengals this year, they have cured a lot of things, and, and they've made a lot of organizational strides. We talked about that on Listener Questions Live yesterday. They've made a lot of organizational strides to, you know, remedy some of their past uh, missteps, right? But – um, the, the Reds really haven't done all that much in the past decade plus. And, you know, this kind of, I, I don't know what you would want to call it arrogance or I, I don't know. I don't know what you want to call it, but uh, it's just a little staggering to me, but it is it's what it is. To- and I, pretty you know, tone depth. Yeah. 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 I guess that would be a good, <laughs> a good thing for it. Yeah. So if pull there for the, for the uh, the Bengals fans, the Red fans, and unfortunately, the Reds just are not really ingraining themselves too well of late with their fan base, and it's a shame because the Reds have a long tradition, and you know, Cincinnati's a great sports town, both for football and baseball, and it's a shame kind of seeing and hearing some of the things coming from the Reds. But like the Bengals, I'm sure at some point they'll be turning things around, doing things the right way. Let's be positive about them, right, John? Sure. I mean, you you have to follow like the Angels. <laughs> You, you had a positive experience with your hometown baseball team the other day. Oh well, yeah, they lost. They lost, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, my my little guy. He he was part of the little league day, so he got to walk around the stadium, and he's awesome. He, he, yeah, he was stoked on that. So that was that was cool. Um, I've got I've got a little bit of news. I don't. I've been holding off because I don't quite know exactly how this will be executed and or if we'll be able to completely follow through on this opportunity that we have received. And I don't, I, John, I have failed to kind of tell you this because it came across early this week, but uh, Cincy jungle and this podcast specifically has been granted media access at the draft in Las Vegas. So I, you know, unfortunately on the personal side of things, I'm going to try and figure out how to, uh, you know, navigate that and, and get that in the works. But um, if and when we are able to get all of that, we're going to get all kinds of interviews and different things going that um, I think will be a very cool opportunity for the website, for this podcast and whatnot. So, uh, you know, and, and Vegas is not geographically that far from me. So the travel there, it's more just obviously, you know, doing things personally with family and all that and working that out and obviously getting more logistics from the league itself. But we did get granted media access to the NFL draft. Pretty excited about that. We're just trying to follow through with the opportunity and see how we can do that. I'm, I'm kind of curious though, because I haven't been to Vegas in, I think since the Delta O'Neill trade in 2004, <laughs> it, it, would it take more time for me to fly out there or for you to drive there? I think it's about an equal. Uh, one, one, <laughs> one way. Me. Yeah. One way for me is like four hours. Um, yeah, so that's, that's without traffic. Uh, flying there is like 35, 45 minutes, uh, from yeah. where I live. So it's just like, boop, boop. so, but you know, man, uh, like you did a great job at the, at the Super Bowl. I hope that you don't lose your phone this time. At the, oh my this God. Well, I didn't lose it. Someone oh, took it. L- quote unquote lose. You had to get a yeah, new one. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I didn't lose I, that I, thing. I think, I think the viewers and listeners, uh, trust, um, y- your work and you will do us, you will do this program. Great at the draft. I'm excited for you, man. Well, I appreciate it. And I, I, I'm going to try again. It's not, it's set in stone in terms of being credentialed, but it's not set in stone in terms of, I, I got to figure out the whole deal with travel and all of that. So uh, stay tuned. I, I hesitated saying something, but I am excited about it for Cincy jungle on this show. I think it's a good opportunity. So 
excited about that. But let's get out of here. We somehow went long, even though we thought we had a light show on, on some fronts, but it was a good one. We had a prospect profile of Kyler Gordon. We John provided us with some great PFF data as it pertains to some recent successful Bengals draft picks. We had a remember when, and of course, we went through the recent headlines of visits, mock drafts, and whatnot with the Cincinnati Bengals. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Again, get this show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio. Make sure you subscribe to the Cincy Jungle Podcast channel and leave us a review if you could. And if you like the videos, of course, give the Cincy Jungle Facebook page a like so you can catch the live streams of the videos afterwards. Or, of course, subscribe to our YouTube channel below underneath John and the SB Nation logo there. You can click that, click the subscribe button in the uh, bell to be notified when we go live and when new content is available we will see you soon with much much more content as the draft nears and can't wait john have a good week bud you too man all right <laughs>